Happy New Year. Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 80. Thank you for joining us. Today we're joined by Margaret Walsh of Secret Garden Educational Pathways, who shares her expertise in special education with us. Margaret shares her thoughts about considering the whole person, the benefits of homeschooling for working with special needs, amongst many other insights into identifying special needs in our children and helping them to develop the tools they need to thrive. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. A few episodes back, we heard Greg Simia recommend Margaret Walsh of Secret Garden Education Pathways. Perhaps our listeners caught her Facebook Friday live event in early November as well. If not, we'll put a link to that in our show notes, as well as to the Colby Cast episode I referred to. Today, Stephen and I welcome Margaret to the Colby Cast. Hi, Margaret. Margaret. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. I'm glad, to, I'm glad to get our turn to talk to you today. It seems your name has been coming up a lot lately and none too soon. So let's take this opportunity to delve into the array of considerations that fall into the special education milieu, especially for those who are new to homeschooling, new to Colby, uh, maybe coming from the public school system or or with no educational training who are encountering um, some things they're seeing as they're going along in their homeschooling experience and uh, might be wondering, uh, what now? What do we do now? So uh, we had a chance to meet you a little bit on, on Facebook, and like I said, and we'll reference that in the show notes, um, with your presentation, looking at the bigger picture, what's causing the learning struggle, and what signs to look for. That was really, we got a lot out of that. So in this conversation, we'll get more into what some of these terms mean uh, that come up in the course of, of a special education conversation. Before we get to all that, Margaret, would you introduce yourself and your company, Secret Garden Educational Pathways, to our listeners? Absolutely. So um, my name is Margaret Welsh, and I started off um, in special education while I was at college. So I've been in the field for eight years now, nine years. And I have a background from Thomas Aquinas College, which has absolutely been like one of the, the major contributors to the path that I've taken with uh, Secret Garden. Um, so that's been a mainstay in my approach to special education, which is a little bit different than a lot of other places. Um, and then I went on to complete a master's in special education, as well as a little bit more additional specialized training in remediation, which is what I've focused on primarily because it's so important. And I have brought all of that into Secret Garden and the work that I do with families. It's it's remediation. Another term for it is education therapy. It's a little bit broad. So you, you'll have different ideas about how remediation should happen, et cetera. But basically remediation is looking at what's causing the learning disability or learning difficulty and how can we help the student exercise that part of their mind so that they can actually increase their abilities and move beyond that to some extent. For some students, it's a complete... Um, like 180 turnaround where they're doing really poorly in school and then they're able to work through remediation and now they are getting straight A's. For other students, they make some progress, but not quite as much as the first group of students. So it really depends on the student, but I think it's really beautiful to have remediation and 
special education therapy because it it is a therapy where you're trying to figure out how do we actually help the student instead of just holding their hand while they take a test, which is also helpful. That's definitely needed for a lot of students, but trying to figure out what's going on and then how to at least how, how to fix it or at least um, facilitate a more efficient and effective means for them to learn is, I think, really important. Um, so that's what I brought to Secret Garden. It's special education services for families who have students who have special education needs, and it's the remediation. We work on both sides of literacy, so both um, dyslexia, that's kind of a group in and of itself where students have a hard time learning to read, remembering the phonograms, putting words together, having good word attack, etc. Um, and then the other side of the coin is comprehension and retention, which is also really important. I think that's sometimes more important than the first aspect, which is being able to read, although that's absolutely important too. But um, with comprehension and retention, that affects so many areas of of your life where you're not making the right connections, you're not getting the main idea, you might miss social cues, things like that. And both of those are two sides of the same coin, which we call literacy. Um, And then we've dabbled a little bit in math stuff as well, depending on what the student needs. And it's highly individual to each student. So when we meet with a family or a student, we come up with like a particular plan for their student based on their struggles and are able to work them through a lot of that. But like I said, I brought a lot of my background from Thomas Aquinas College into the work that I'm doing with students, which is phenomenal because you can step back and see the the big picture. I'm a very big picture kind of person where I like to see the connections and, and the how how everything fits together. So it's nice to have that background and be able to step back both theologically and philosophically and see what's actually going on and and approach it that way instead of only only using technical terms. It's also really helpful, you know, when you're talking to the families and they're not sure what this looks like, you're able to step back and say, well, this is the bigger picture. This is, you know, what's going on. And once you start talking to the families about that, they have an understanding and realization. And it's my hope that a lot of them can go back home and start troubleshooting some of these areas themselves if they understand what's going on. So hope that was a that was a long introduction to me and what I'm doing, but um, hopefully it's it gives people an, a glimpse into what we're doing here. Makes me very happy to hear about that TAC background as a fellow TAC graduate. Uh, yeah, thinking about causes and all the, the broad things that you're talking about makes sense, but happy to hear that. Yeah, it's it was so great because when I was going through TAC, Thomas Aquinas College, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to ever use this education for. It was great. I loved it. But then when I started seeing the connections in special education based on my training, I was like, it blew my mind for like the first month. And I was like, this is really, really cool. And there is a connection. I'm able to use everything that I learned there in in my work, even even though the day in and day out is not always as phenomenal as those connections are. But when you when you do see all those connections, it's just it's amazing. And it, it's really helpful uh, for anyone to see those connections as well, instead of just getting caught up in the technical terms, because those can also be really scary for people too. It's like going to a doctor and they say, oh, you have this diagnosis. And you're like, well, can you tell me what that means in like common terms? Like um, what what does my outcome look like and everything? Um, so it's, it's, it's a similar area. So having that background has been really helpful. 
I can see the real value of of the services that you provide to teach to families to work with their with their children in their in their family settings being such a a good companion to the overall homeschool the school at home approach we are taking that the one of the reasons we are doing this is the customization of our children's education to their needs all all kinds of their whole person needs which is a point you made in your Facebook uh, presentation about the whole person and, and integrating all, all of the aspects of the person. And I think it's so easy to zero in on a symptom that we're seeing or some behavior or something and think, well, how do we get that to stop or how do we fix that or whatever and uh, get so hyper-focused on it and and not really realize that there's so much more to it. It's like the tip of the iceberg in some respects that there's a lot more going on than just what we're seeing on the surface. And to, ha- to have that realization that, well, let's delve a little deeper and, and see how everything is related it, yeah, it's like a really go, it speaks to really addressing the actual needs rather than the temporary fix. Right, right. And it's amazing working with homeschool families in particular because you get to talk to the parents who are so keyed into what their student is struggling with. And I'll, I'll look at test results that the, the families send me. But then the, the discussion that I have with parents is often way more helpful to me because they're there every step of the way. They've been there since day one with their student. They haven't, most of them, most homeschool families haven't really sent their kids to school, but even if they have and they've brought them back or they've just started homeschooling, they know their student way better than anyone else ever will. And so you can delve in and ask those deeper questions like, what was, you know, did Johnny have any delays when he was two? Um, You can go all the way back to that time and figure out, was there something that caused this or um, is this something that doesn't fall under, under what we do, but can we refer to someone else? And, and when you can talk to the parents and see that whole person that their student is from their point of view, you can often like, even if, even if we're not able to work with them, refer them to, to something else that they didn't even have on their radar before. And, and looking at all that and something that we've actually added to some of what we're doing is we're trying to incorporate some nutritional therapy as well, which is really important for supporting just the entire body and especially the right connections that you're trying to make in the brain. Um, and when you're not looking at the whole person, you don't ask, oh, well, are there flare ups when they eat certain like trigger foods and stuff like that, which is, it's a little bit of a different approach, but it's, it's definitely whole person and, and figuring out, is there more that we can do to support the student versus just like you said, the, the technical, typical things that um, the schools provide and working with the parents that closely is is super helpful for us to do. And then it's also translates over into like the work with the students or, or the referrals and helping that family find the right fit for their student. You're giving the students uh, all kinds of tools that they can take with them throughout their whole lives that it will support them as they grow into the people they're called to be. That's great. Yeah. I'm intrigued by your company. It's a uh, it's not just a local business though. You, you work with families all over the place, right? Yeah. I've been working. I was cool before everyone else was. <laughs> I've been working on zoom for like five years now. And before that I was using, um, Skype. So I've been, I'm super comfortable with working with families online. We've had a couple of families all the way from Ireland. I think one or two families from South America that worked with us. And it's been a blessing for me to meet all these amazing families from everywhere instead of just being limited to the local communities, which are also amazing. But when you get to meet these parents from all different walks of life and all different locations and, and the students that they have, it's, it's really amazing to see that. And it, 
it was a calling for me to work with homeschool families because that's where, that's the community I came from. And I know growing up, we only had like piano lessons. And that was a major thing every single week where you had to go and spend half your day driving and then taking your piano lesson and then driving back. And it was a, it was a whole process. And one of the reasons why I decided to work online with families and try to figure out how to do that was because I knew where a lot of homeschool families were coming from. And I wanted them to, first of all, have some kind of support. And then second of all, have support that was super accessible to them so that they didn't have to drive an hour down the road for an hour long session and then drive an hour back. That's three hours total versus just like telling Johnny to go get on the computer with Miss Walsh and start the class and then he's done. And that's it. And mom can be in the kitchen making dinner. She could be downstairs, you know, working with her other students in school, what have you. But it's um, that's been really great because we have been able to work with a lot of different families and help them out from where they are. The other thing that's that is really, really neat about working online is that students are much more relaxed when they're at home. So we're working as close as we can to modeling in-person teaching. So that's the goal is to have much more of an in-person feel, but there's still that slight degree of separation where I'm on the other side of the computer screen. And so a lot of kids who may have struggled a little bit more with social um, ease, I guess you could say, are much more comfortable because they're at home. They can come to class in their pages if they want to, and you're not as close to them which can sometimes make them uncomfortable. So they're able to open up a little bit faster and actually work with you a little bit better. And I, when I first started in this field, I was working on location with students in person. And then when I transitioned to working online, I noticed that a lot of students would open up much more quickly. A lot of people are like, well, how do you build rapport when you're online? And it's much easier for some of these students to build that rapport online because you're not sitting next to them, you're across the computer screen. So you're not like, yeah. you know, breathing down their neck or anything like that. Um, like looking over their shoulder at the work they're doing, they, they get to sit there and do it right in front of them and you're not in the same room with them. So they, a lot of students really enjoy that. And even like the high school students that may not have some of those social anxieties, they still are engaged and enjoy and enjoy their computer time. They get to go online and then we share different uh materials and stuff like that online. So it's, it's worked very well with a lot of different students. That's interesting. Yeah. Just the, the sense of, of ease, as you say, that, that is established more quickly by the, the setting. That's neat. Yeah. And I'm working with a school locally here this year, which is super exciting, but it took a lot longer to build that sense of ease with the students because it was someone new that they weren't used to. They were also in their school setting um, and it was something new for me as well, but I know I did notice that um, it took a lot longer for those students to open up versus like, mm-hmm. and I even worked with one of those students online because um, there was an illness in their household and they couldn't come to school, and she was a completely different person online than in person. And I was like, why aren't you like this when you come to school? But it, <laughs> yeah. I think it was because she was in her home setting. Her mom was there. Her siblings were running around the house behind her, and she was just a different person. She was relaxed. She she was having fun, joking around. And then the next day we were back at the school and she was like all quiet and timid. So I do definitely see that difference. And it's it's a good difference because, uh, again, it's, it is a little bit 
strange to have this idea of doing special education work online when so much of it is done in person, but I've seen a huge benefit to doing it online. Wow. Really speaks to us here at Colby, of course, because you know so many of the things that you're saying, it's like, oh, these, these are just like some of the online classes, you know, some of the same benefits we see for, you know, maybe I'm not sure about the comfort level. I'd have to talk to some of the online teachers there, but certainly you know, you're able to reach so many more people now who wouldn't, who don't have a good service in their area, just like you know, thinking of those parallels here. And it's just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there are different like communities that have really good services through their school and other communities that just don't. And so we have been able to help some of those families that have like miserable school districts that don't work with them. So that's been a, that's definitely been a big blessing. It's fantastic to know that yet your services are available this way. It's really very helpful to know to have that just at the ready. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of that, though, tell me about education therapy that term and how it differs from tutoring and other services offered in in this field. Excellent question. So education therapy, I was doing some research on it um, a while ago. It's Similar to speech therapy or speech pathology um, in the fact that you're looking at a weakness and trying to strengthen it and trying to figure out how to strengthen it um, versus tutoring, which is often what students in the school system get. Um, They either get someone who sits next to them and helps them through the work or they just work extra with someone on math or history or whatever they're struggling with. Tutoring is much more looking at the subject and working on it with someone next to you, working through the material, which is definitely needed for some students. It's helpful for a lot of students, but it doesn't really figure out why they're struggling in that area. So I'll use math as an example. A lot of students who have math struggles struggle to see the digits in their mind and connect that with a number line or the concept of multiplying. And so no matter how much you drill multiplication with them, even if you have a tutor sitting next to them working with them, you're not going to break through. It's just going to be maybe a memorized fact where you can say what's three times five and they say 15, but they may have no concept of what that means. And so when you work in education therapy or mediation, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what's, what's actually going on? can we help them make this connection? And then these are the steps that we go through to help them make that connection. And then they start making that connection automatically at a certain point. And it just, they start kind of taking off after that. So that's, that's a little bit of the difference between the two is that with tutoring, you're working through the material and you're just kind of pushing through it with someone sitting next to you who may be, you know, an excellent teacher in that specific subject, but it's not necessarily going to help the student move beyond what their struggle is. It may get them through that class, but when you're actually trying to figure out what is going on, you have to delve a little bit deeper and then figure out, okay, well, what can we do to help them connect with this better? Because oftentimes it's a sensory connection, a sensory to the imagination connection, which I talked about, I think in the Facebook thing where, um, they might see or, um, interpret the information, but then they can't create that image or the image gets mixed up. And so they're not making that connection as connection problems. You have to take them back to square one and walk them through what that connection is again. And for different students, it's going to be slightly different. They're going to have trouble spots in different areas. But that's the basic difference is that you're not necessarily going through the material that they're struggling with, but you're going deeper than that and figuring out 
Why are they struggling with this material? And then once they increase their capabilities, they're oftentimes able to complete the work in whatever subject they're struggling in with at least much more ease, if not no problems at all. And I've worked with a lot of different students over the past um, several years where they'll work, 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 and it seems like we're not really getting anywhere. And then all of a sudden something clicks. And that's because you've been going through that process with them to strengthen that capability. And once it's strong enough and they start making those connections, it it absolutely clicks for most students. So I hope that kind of explains what the difference is between the two. Yeah. It's really getting to the heart of the matter, helping them for the long term, for the big picture to yeah. take the keep on building. Yeah. And another analogy that's really easy to see is like, if you break your ankle and you go to the doctor and they say, here's some crutches, that's kind of like a tutor, which is definitely essential. Um, so it's like a tutor or it's like, um, an education plan where they have accommodations so that they don't have to do as many math problems type thing, but those are crutches and you don't necessarily want them to use those permanently. So if you want them to be able to walk, you have to send them to the physical therapist who's going to reteach them how to use that, that ankle again, the right way so that they can walk and eventually run. Um, and it's a very similar analogy to accommodation and tutoring. So I kind of threw accommodation into that um, category as well versus the education therapy or remediation is just crutches or crutches plus physical therapist equal eventually being able to walk and run um, and perform close to what they wanted to do. So that's an analogy that I found helpful when I was talking to a lot of different families and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because again, when you're when you're talking about more technical things, it's sometimes helpful to bring something like that into the discussion so that you can see the parallel. I found this interesting in your in your Facebook presentation about all the assistive technologies that exist now and who knows what's yet to come and the need to both develop the skills that you are working through in, with your education and therapy in addition to or alongside the assistive technologies, they go together that that reliance on the one won't won't be as effective as working together with both making use of those technologies, but also addressing that what's underneath that. That's that was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, and assistive technology is not something that I've studied in depth. It can be super helpful and it's often necessary at the beginning. But then, like you said, you don't want to only rely on that because if someone is struggling with dyslexia and you just say, okay, just go listen to audiobooks for all of your school, what happens when they get into a job later on and they have to be able to read like the um, safety manual or something like that, working in a kitchen or something, or, um, you know, they have to read the policies of their company or they have to read off credit card information to people it's not going to translate over into that. So you have to think long-term as well, not just like, can we get them through the class, but what are the skills that we need to like help them with so that long-term they will be able to function and perform a lot better once they hit the real world. And a lot of students, you know, some students think that, oh, I'll never be able to go to college. But then when you work them, when you work with some of that assistive technology, plus something like remediation, then they're absolutely able to go to college most of the time. Yeah. Let's talk about what it means to have a student with special learning needs, what some of those needs might be, and maybe how to tell, how to start that process of determining whether there are special learning needs present or if if the student is behind in content. Right. So um, when someone has special education learning needs, they usually have some sort of underlying struggle 
according to the IDEA Disability Act, there are 13 categories for that. And the first two categories are um, the ones that are most common or the first couple categories. So someone with a special education learning need might have dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia. Those are the dis's. Um, those are fairly easy to like categorize. Um, and then someone who struggles with ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, those are the kind of blanket boxes that um, that you would use when looking at a special education learning need that a student might have. And this translates over into struggles in specific areas. So one student might struggle with auditory learning. And so that's where you would introduce a lot more of the material physically, like writing down different facts instead of talking to them and discussing with them. Uh, the flip side might be um, possible where a student might not be able to read very well. And so you have to deliver a lot of the material um, by means of like explaining it to them, reading books to them, using their auditory learning um, and, and just switching that other students, it'll be a very slow processing time. Most students might get schoolwork done in four to six hours each day. This student might take seven, eight, nine hours a day to get through the material. And they may be able to get through the material, but it just, just takes a, a long time for them to get through the material. And that would be a processing struggle. And I like to think of it less of this is the diagnosis that they might have versus these are the symptoms and struggles that they might have. Because I know for a lot of homeschool families, there isn't necessarily a diagnosis. And so you have to kind of figure out, okay, well, what are the symptoms that you're seeing? Let's see if we can help those symptoms. And so a lot of those symptoms are, you know, slower processing speed, very poor working memory where they have to remember multi-step directions, things like that, uh, not being able to decode words, not being able to remember what they've read or sometimes even not being able to remember what they had for breakfast and it's, it's dinner time. And you're like, what did you have for breakfast? Or what do you do this morning? And they're like, I don't know. Um, so like memory struggles, focus struggles, uh, where they are just like not focused with anything. And that with some of these, I would say you really have to know your student. You have to figure out, is this an age thing? Because like a six-year-old boy is going to be like thinking of all these other cool things versus focused on school. So you really have to pray about it and figure out, is this a struggle or is this an age thing right now? And even for some students who struggle with reading, they'll hit like eight and a half or nine years old and then it'll click and they'll keep moving on. I would say if you are past nine years old and you're not reading, that's definitely a red flag. But um, some of these things are um, emotional maturity, age whether you're a boy or a girl at that certain time, certain age, I should say, because girls are going to mature a little bit more quickly emotionally. And just figuring out if there's just resistance in general. And I know that's something that is a very fine line. Is this just like behavior and resistance where they don't want to do the work or is there actually a struggle? And you have to look at how they're interacting with other people outside of the home and other projects. Like if a student can do projects that require math or uh, reading comprehension skills, and they are able to do it just fine. But then when it comes to school, they just put up a fight, then maybe it's more of a behavior problem. But if you see for something fun, they're also struggling with that. That's most likely not a behavior struggle. And the great thing about working with families is 
all the families are able to individualize the learning and the mom is right there, which is what the schools offer as an accommodation. Oh, well, we can have someone working with your student one-on-one to help get them through the school, which is exactly what the parents are doing already. So if you homeschool your student, even if there's a learning need, you're doing at least 50% of what the school would be doing anyway, that the, that the schools say, oh, we're the only ones who can provide this. Well, guess what? You're providing that, you know, half of that yourself at home automatically. And so that's, that's really neat. And you, it's just looking at those symptoms and figuring out, okay, well, these are the symptoms. Is there something going on? And I would recommend there is a website that is really helpful, especially when you're looking at symptoms or if you anticipate that your child might struggle in a certain area and it's Mm understood.org. Yeah. Understood.org. They have really simple, easy to read articles that explain the different symptoms the student might have if they have this learning struggle. And I go and use that often myself just so I have like a short answer for parents if they're asking questions and stuff like that is really, really helpful in, in looking that up. So you have to kind of look at the symptoms and and then do some research, do some digging online, see if those symptoms match anything, and then try to figure out is this an age thing? Is it a maturity thing? Uh, is it an emotional struggle? And slowly start ruling things out so that you can narrow down what you're actually looking at. Um, and then to the second part of your question with regards to is there a learning struggle or are they just behind? That's also super individual and personal. I've known several families who have just been behind and they're like their student wasn't emotionally ready for that load of schoolwork yet. And so they were behind and then I I was able to work with them a little bit and they, they made that transition at a certain point when they were ready. Other times families have, have not done a lot of uh, formal schooling, I would say. So I've encountered several students like that where they may not have a absolute or a particular learning struggle, but because the family hasn't done a lot of formal learning, gone through the phonics and stuff like that when they were younger, they're behind. Oftentimes, if a student is behind, it is good to consider, is there something going on that's causing them to be behind? And again, that's where you have to start ruling out factors. Uh, Was there limited formal learning when they were young? Or if there was formal learning, is this a maturity thing? Um, But I've encountered a lot of families where their student is way behind or they're getting like C's and D's in every single class. So they might be in the right grade, but they're getting really poor grades. And that is something where you have to see, you know, is there something going on? A lot of students who are behind or consistently getting poor grades struggle with some of that processing speed and the comprehension, not being able to understand what the material is conveying to them or what pieces of information they should keep locked in their mind and what pieces of information are not important. And so I would say if someone's behind, I would definitely explore, is there something more going on? But it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a learning disability. Does that make sense? I hope that answered. That was kind of like Mm -hmm. rambling, but I hope that kind of answered the two sides. I thought you answered it beautifully. I wrapped up like 29 questions all at once like here answer all these in one in one fell swoop and you did great with that so (laughs) I I commend you for that I thought you did a great job with that um so if you if you come to the realization through this process that there are special education learning needs so many folks I talk to in this field want to emphasize that this is not 
a negative label. It's more a chance to help students learn each in his or her unique way. And it's another opportunity for us to serve the whole person, the person in front of us, rather than a set of symptoms or whatever. It's worth serving a person. Right. Here. Like you, you used the analogy of the, the medical diagnosis before, that those can be very scary and almost feel negative in their way, that this is, it has a parallel to it. Do you, does yeah. tree with you? Absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent. I know there are a lot of families who are hesitant to explore this because they don't want their student to have a stigma or they don't want their student to have a learning diagnosis label, so to speak, uh, because they're afraid that that will cause problems later on with college or career or, or they're afraid of going through the diagnostic process and uh, being pressured to put their student in the schools. That's that's definitely been a big concern for a lot of families. Um, and I would say looking at a diagnosis, getting a diagnosis, um, or even like thinking, you know, looking at a symptom list and saying, oh, I think my student has this, even though we don't have an official diagnosis. It does sound scary at first, but like you said, it gives you an opportunity to figure out how can I help my student now that I know they are struggling with this. And it can also bring clarity to different like family and social situations. Oh, so-and-so struggles with comprehension. So they might be a little bit slower in the conversation. So we have to be aware of that and provide them an opportunity to contribute to the conversation. Little things like that can really, really help that student feel like they're still part of the family and everything. And it helps the family work around that student and with that student not only academically, but also socially, because a lot of students who do struggle in academics have lower self-esteem or they have social and emotional struggles that go with their learning struggles. And so when you're looking at the whole person, that diagnosis can be super helpful. I've talked with several families who were hesitant to get a diagnosis at first, and then they got the diagnosis and they're like, oh my goodness, now this explains all these behaviors that we thought were just being a naughty child. Because that can also come up too. Like, are certain behaviors, naughty child, typical behaviors, are those because your student is being naughty or is that because there's something else going on that is more of a a disability that you're not aware of? And so I would say looking at that, and that, that doesn't mean that you have to go out and get a diagnosis. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm not like trying to put pressure on that, but if you do, it shouldn't be a scary thing. Or if you look at the symptoms, it shouldn't be a super scary thing. And then you can actually figure out, you know, how can I help my student? It's definitely helpful to see that. And the other thing to remember is that even if your student might have a diagnosis of a learning struggle or an intellectual disability, and the intellectual disabilities are a lot more, I would say, stronger or more severe than an educational disability, academic disability. But the, the other important thing to remember is that coming from a Catholic perspective, this student is a child of God. And they need the same amount of love that everyone else does. And the other thing to, to that I was just thinking about the other day, I talk about St. Joseph of Cupertino um, a lot because if he had been living in today's times, I'm pretty sure he would have had some sort of academic disability. But God used him and, and God reached out into his heart and touched his heart even if he wasn't able to learn the same ways that most people are able to learn. And he reached such great heights of sainthood. And then Joan of Arc was also another example where she probably didn't have a learning disability, but she was illiterate. She didn't learn how to read or write or anything like that. And yet she, she stood strong 
in the face of all the bishops who were at her tribunal who tried to like trick her into different things. And it's just, it shows the response to the grace that anyone can have. And you have Our Lady of La Salette, where she appeared to the shepherds who were not educated. You had Our Lady of Lourdes appearing to St. Bernadette, who also wasn't schooled. And then Our Lady of Fatima, you have you have actually Our Lady appearing to so many different people who were not very well educated. We just had Our Lady of Guadalupe's feast day, and she appeared to St. Juan Diego. So you have a lot of instances where, as a Catholic, you can recognize that your student can respond to the grace that God is giving them and lead very fulfilled lives, even if there is a diagnosis. And even if they have a diagnosis that's more severe and they may not be able to make a complete 180 turnaround and be able to get straight A's at college and stuff like that. Some students are able to do that. Other students are not, but you have to look at things with a Catholic perspective as well, where you're looking at the grace that these students can respond to regardless of what they're struggling with. So a diagnosis can be really helpful. And even if you get a diagnosis that is a little bit scarier or more severe, it doesn't mean that you're at the end of the road. You're at the beginning of a journey. And it may be a little bit of a different journey than what you were originally planning on, you know, accompanying your student on. But it's still a journey towards God, hopefully. Um, A journey towards the where we're supposed to go. I haven't had that conversation with all the parents, but there are a lot of parents where I have, you know, had that deeper conversation with them. And it's, it's really beautiful to see their faith and how they interact with their students and just focusing on that aspect sometimes to, to help their students as well. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, Blessed Solanus Casey is one of our, our favorites in our, our family who kind of struggled a bit too, but, you know, doing wonderful things. And it always seems to me, you know, as when I think about these things, when you have a child in school, this is the most really intense learning activities that they're going to be having. So this is when everything kind of shows up. But um, even if even if they don't have learning difficulties, but they just things are harder for them than other people, it seems like once you get out into life and hopefully you get into something where you love what you're doing, then learning may be harder for you, but it's what you love so it doesn't stand out quite so much so i always try to keep that in mind at least for myself when people are struggling and it's just they're going to be a failure in life and it's like no this is just a tiny portion of this is the start of a journey and it's not it's not really that big of a deal as a matter of fact yeah yeah absolutely and there's also like if you do if your student is struggling whether they have a diagnosis or not and you you consider that instead of just ignoring that fact and you try to figure out, you know, what is their struggle, then you can you can help them carry their cross also because they're going to need help, even, especially if it's hard. Um, and even if they do push through, like you were saying, and, and they're able to get through the material and everything, but they still have to have someone helping them out. And so that's where not ignoring some of the struggles is really important because then you can be a better Simon of Cyrene helping them along, um, which they need. So... Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Helping them learn about themselves so they can do as much as they can to help themselves and then identify where they're going to need assistance to get where they need to go, whatever that means. Right. Yeah. Right. And if you do have a student who struggles a little bit more and you do get a diagnosis, then they will be able to present that to college or even to work and say, this is what I'm struggling with. It doesn't mean that I'm going to like, you know, just skate by with like no challenge but this is where I need help. And it can actually, it can, it can be helpful. 
So I would I would say it's not quite I, I wouldn't veer away from it because you're afraid of a stigma or a, a self-perception that a student might have. And I, I understand if families are afraid of that because of being pushed into the public schools. But there are also other ways to get a diagnosis privately. Uh, and sometimes at major universities that teach uh, special educators, they where, where people get their degrees in special education, they always need students that they can practice testing on. And it's underneath like a professor. So the testing results are usually pretty accurate, even if you have an undergrad or graduate student testing your student. That's also another way that they can uh, access some of that testing if they don't want to go to their local public school is figure okay. out where where they can go with that. There was an article on understood.org about the, the, the different places where you could get testing done. Um, I'll dig that up and send it over to you guys, and then you could hopefully yeah, link great. it in so that families know where they can go if they're if they're a little bit afraid of the local district. So, sure. okay, great, great. We can't know what we don't know, and we can't address problems we don't know exist, right? If we just see stuff happening, but we don't delve a little deeper, then how can we reasonably expect them to get any better? <laughs> right. So, right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about some lingo words that we often hear um, shortly after we hear the term special education, special education learning needs, although all that there's some a bit of some alphabet soup that sometimes gets thrown around IEP and 504 remediation, which you've already defined for us quite well that that really clarified that that word tremendously for me. Um, interventions, things like that. Let's let's talk some vocabulary here. Sure. So, 504 and I 504 plans and IEP plans are very similar. They're educational plans that help accommodate and support the student so that they can get through their schoolwork. Okay. So that's much more like I had the uh, reference to like the crutches before. It's mm -hmm. a lot of times it's much more of that where they're like. Johnny can't do 30 math problems, so we're going to let him do five. And it's adjusting the teaching style or the how much they're teaching, things like that, to accommodate the students so that they can actually get at least some of the work done. There is also usually occupational therapy or speech therapy thrown into there as well. And so when you, when you have something with therapy attached to it, it is actually a little bit more beneficial than just accommodations and... Um, differentiation of instruction. So accommodating is reducing the like the amount of work or changing how you submit it. So if a student can't write, maybe they could uh, do an oral uh, review of, of stuff. Um, and then differentiating instruction is if Johnny can't read very well, then having someone help him with oral instruction instead of reading instruction. So those are, the, those are oftentimes very much part of IEP plans or 504 plans. There's not much difference, not too much difference between a 504 and an IEP. An IEP is a lot more involved. Uh, there's a, a bigger team that looks at that, uh, figuring out what the student needs. And there's often, I think always, there's testing done at the beginning, at the end. There's progress monitoring throughout. 504 is a little bit more broad and it can, uh, there are a lot more disabilities in general that a 504 will address. An IEP will address, um, there are 13 
different things that it will address. They're specific to learning. And there's a article on understood.org about exactly which ones those are. And then intervention, that's also a little bit of a term similar to remediation. So it can mean a few different things. I'm going to look up the common definition real quick. So one of the definitions that came up was uh, skill building strategies that are designed to move special students to more advanced academic levels. So intervention is also going to be similar to remediation. Um, but it can also be building more of those organizational skills as well. So like, let's use this color tab for these tasks and this color tab for these tasks. Um, so it's a little bit of a looser term as well okay. to help students develop strategies in the classroom. So maybe okay. someone needs to take notes while the class is going, or maybe they need to focus at the beginning or the end, things like that. Um, so I would say it's not a huge term to like be concerned about. I would say IEP plans and remediation are like the two larger terms that a lot of families can look at. Okay. So especially for families who have come to Colby from the public schools with, uh, these types of plans here at Colby, if I understand it correctly, these types of plans are not required in order to, uh, customize education, especially in the home school setting, if we're using the traditional school at home plans, Colby doesn't require these types of, of documents to be in place in order to do that. And there's a team of special needs advisors at Colby with whom parents can speak about making the necessary adjustments to the course plans to suit the needs that each student has. Um, and also with the online classes, same thing where they can uh, speak to the special needs advisors there are a few of them according to age and uh, which route, you know, homeschool or online that that parents can speak to about um, about these matters. There there are some some accommodations that can be made in the online courses, but they are less so on that side. And, and Celeste Cuellar has addressed some of those in previous episodes. We'll we'll link some of those in our show notes as well. So there's more flexibility on the homeschool side than on the online side. But there there are those that does exist. So for, for families new to Colby, especially coming from the schools, it's probably noteworthy to, to keep that in mind that, that, uh, it's a, it's a little different story here. So. Yeah. And I think it's important for families to know that, that you guys offer that kind of help to them because if they're, if they are coming from a school and they've had an IEP plan before, they could probably send it over to you guys and have your special education consultants look at it and be like, well, this is how we'd recommend that you guys change things at home. And then, like I mentioned before, a lot of what's in those IEP plans is done at home by the parents because you already have that individualized instruction. You can use different materials at home. Um, you can shorten the lesson at home. All of those things are things that are included in this specialized plan. And it, I think it's mostly a specialized plan because you have what, like 30 something kids in one classroom with one teacher. And so you don't have the ability to individualize things unless there's a specific plan in place. So once you transition back over to, or over to being um, homeschooled, uh, then you have that flexibility automatically built in at home. And that's how like the special education people at Colby 
um, can help the families start that and learn how to learn how to work with that. You don't need an IEP plan any longer the same way you would have needed it in school. So that's, that's something that I've talked to a lot of families about in the past is like, yes, you had an IEP plan then, but now we're working, you know, you guys are homeschooling now. So this is what it might look like at home. Right. Or even a a formal diagnosis also. Same, same story there. If parents are noticing, uh, things that, that you've mentioned in the course of this conversation and in your presentation on Facebook uh, that they're seeing at home, they can start to uh, delve deeper and perhaps seek out your help and, and with the special needs advisors assistance as well to, to kind of get where they need to be and help their students with their unique needs. I would also say there have been cases in the past where teachers whether it's, you know, in a homeschool class or whether it's at a school, teachers have, it's, it's, what I'm basically trying to say is it's good to flag maybe certain students if they are really struggling um, versus just saying, oh, this is just a behavior thing or they're, they're just like not paying attention in class. I had one student once where she came to my class and she was in tears because someone had called her out in a Latin class and said, said that she was dumb, she wasn't doing the work. And she was just absolutely grief stricken when she came to my class. And we just spent the entire class talking about how she's not stupid and she needs to like maybe switch a couple things and that ask her guardian angel to help her through different things. So I think that's something to keep in mind uh, for a lot of different families is that if your student is really struggling, not to just say, oh, this just like, it's just them being stubborn. It's the, just them not um, having any discipline or something like that at home is if you have a structured family life, then this is probably an indication of something else and, and not to put all the blame on the student for something they might not be able to like help. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there because I've seen that mm-hmm. a lot with a lot of different families and, and different schools and stuff like that. Yeah. All, all too easy to try to uh, cast blame somewhere like, well, that's just that, just sort of write it off. And, but it's, yeah. um, it's harder to get past the initial, like that tip of the iceberg, like I mentioned. So, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love hearing about the saints that you both mentioned. So reassuring to think, and we've talked before about saints that our students can look to for inspiration for various, you know, states of life or points along the way. Here's, here are more examples that, you know, if they are encountering these situations themselves, these struggles themselves, they can look to the saints who, who can relate in these ways. That's neat. All right. This has been fantastic. We will include the links, as I've mentioned already, to your Facebook presentation and your Secret Garden Educational Pathways website. We'll also include the link to the ColbyCast episode in which Greg Simia references and recommends you, Margaret, and your company, and some of the other episodes that have come up in the course of this conversation. Are there other final thoughts or resources or recommendations you have for us as this spring semester is getting underway? I just say as final thoughts, if you do have a student who's struggling with education, I would recommend trying to find games that help address some of their learning struggles because once you change what their mind is focused on, once they're focused on like the game versus the skill that they need for the game, it can really make a huge difference with their education in general. Um, So as parents, finding a game that can help your student with a certain struggle is going to is going to be really helpful for you and your student because then you don't necessarily have to have tons of training yourself in order to work with your student. You can just pull out the game and be like, we're going to play this. Um, And then also 
I would say finding time to like have fun as a family. Cause when you're so focused on a special education need or things are taking all day, every day, um, you will burn out. And I talked to, uh, one parent, uh, she had like a podcast a, a while ago and she was talking about, you need that break. You need to just, mom needs a break and the whole family needs a break and your student needs a break. So make sure you build those breaks into that. Even if it's like taking a day off once every month or something like that and going to the zoo or going to a museum, going out of the house, getting out, doing something fun, go ice skating, go build those family relationships. Um, because once you build that loving environment where something might be hard and you have to push through it, but then you know that you're going to have this time together as a family where you don't have to worry about that. That's going to make you as a family even stronger. Um, and it's going to give you those breaks that are needed if your student is struggling because it, it can be really hard. It can be very, very hard if you have a student who has special education needs. Um, and that's where you also have to think of it. This, this is a journey that we're going on together. It's a different journey than maybe the parents envisioned, but definitely building in that family time, I think is incredibly important and building that environment of love and just playing games, going and doing things together, anything you can, and, and making sure that's part of your routine is, is really, really important uh, because your student needs that as well as you. So that that's, that's my final thought, I guess, is, uh, is games and then also building in some of that quality time where you can forget about the struggles that you've gone through and just enjoy one one another's company. Building up that relationship like that will will hopefully help everybody involved. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Thank you, Margaret. As we're wrapping up, thank you for joining us, but but especially thank you for putting this together. So I'm, I'm so glad that you were inspired to do this. I've talked to families myself who, who've been so helped by this service. So thank you for doing this for everyone. Absolutely. It's, it's when I was going through college and stuff, I did not envision myself working with students who had special education learning needs, but it's, it was definitely more of a calling for me, I think. And, uh, I absolutely love it. I definitely need those breaks. So I've built those into my schedule too, but it's, it's amazing meeting all of these, kids who they struggle, but when you get to know them, they're, they're truly amazing people. And I guess to show you the depth of, you know, who they are and everything. Yeah. Just, just some phenomenal kids and examples to me oftentimes. So, you know, I don't have that kind of cross to carry myself and seeing them pick up their cross and carry it has been phenomenal for, for me to see and inspiring for me to see. So it's, it's truly uh, such a gift for me to be able to work with these students and families. And it's, again, it's not, I feel like it's not just a job, which is also really fulfilling for me because yeah. oftentimes when you're working, when you graduate and everything, you're, you just, you're plugging away at a job. And instead, and I'm sure you guys encounter this too, you know, working at Colby and being able to like bring the truth to these families and these students, it's, it's so much more than just a job. And it's, it's, it's a calling for, for all of us. So yeah, I love it. It's wonderful to see how you've brought all the pieces of your of your education and your background together to serve families in this way. And you're definitely a Simon of Cyrene to them. It's been a pleasure meeting you, Margaret. Thank you so much for visiting with us today and all you're offering to the families you serve. And we look forward to visiting with you again. 
Absolutely. It's been wonderful meeting both of you. If you haven't already, subscribe to the Colby Cast in your favorite podcast app to make sure you don't miss an episode. And we'd love to hear from you. So feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.